Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning, afternoon, or even evening, gentle listener. And welcome to the History of England. I am not David Crowther. Isn't it fun how it's become traditional at the start of guest episodes to deny being a great man, as if he were some sort of reverse Spartacus? I'm not David Crowther, so please don't crucify the wrong guy. I am Ed McWatt, from Cambridgeshire in England. I'm a writer and... I'm not going to lie to you, a massively more successful reader of history books. Now, with the enduring doubt over the identity of this voice in your head somewhat abated for another week, let's get on with the show, shall we? Like many of you listening to this, I imagine, my earliest fuzzy memories of being gripped by a passion for history are when I was told about one of the hinge points which defined its era. Maybe it was 1066 or perhaps 1492. Now, despite how well-trodden these paths are, the thing I still find fascinating to think about is how it must have felt to be present, peering over a cliff's edge at a future which was utterly different from anything you've known before. I think about the third man, trudging back north from Hastings, for example, contemplating the utter collapse of his country, and that moment when it suddenly became clear to him that things would never be the same again. Of course, this is to imbue the average Saxon fighting farmer with an improbable grasp of the sweep of northern European political landscape and history, but you take my point. How terrifying it must have been to feel even the fleeting edge of the enormity of the change taking hold around you. And these points of vertiginous anticipation, immediately before Le Deluge, continue to grip me through decades of studying history. In this short episode, interloping gratefully into David's superb podcast, I'm going to talk about one such moment of inflection in the history of England. Now, I'm going to ask you to make an empathetic leap into the mindset of someone undergoing traumatic change. Imagine, if you can, being a member of a fiercely proud island nation. An island with a reputation for both its bleak weather and its stubbornness. Just off the forbidding Atlantic coast of mainland Europe. Got that so far? Good. Now, factor in the emotions you might reasonably feel after generations of economic decline and the vague fear that immigrants are putting at risk everything you have left. Add in an unhealthy dose of resentment at the growing coldness of the rest of civilization towards you and your countrymen, and the near certainty that any minute now the last fragile link to the continent will be permanently severed, leaving you adrift in an unforgiving, perilous sea of political and economic uncertainty. Can you imagine what that must feel like? Now I ask you for a leap of empathy, but anyone listening to this from the UK will probably find that leap more of a baby step right now. The parallels between the current process of Brexit and the original unesthetised break with the continent in the 5th century CE are hard to ignore. 
but we know remarkably little about the whys and wherefores of what, to borrow a phrase from one of David's Ladybird books of history, was the end of Roman Britain and the beginning of the, whisper it, Dark Ages. The 19th century artist John Everett Millay romantically recreated the scene in a painting, with a weeping Briton maiden saying goodbye forever to her legionary boyfriend on some windswept shore. It's truly touching. But it seems unlikely to me that the final collapse was this ordered, defined, or respectful of Victorian social moray. So, what do we know? As you would expect from this distance, the evidence of what happened, and what it would have felt like, is patchy. In fact, looking at the textual references that have survived, patchy is a positively hyperbolic claim. Even slight isn't much more credible, and I fear we may be forced to resort to apocryphal. Gildas, a monk with a maester grind, writing over a century later, paints a picture of brave native resistance to inexhaustible waves of unwashed and hairy Saxon invaders, a viewpoint that would get him shouted down on Twitter in about five minutes these days. He also bemoans the steady, crippling weakening of British defences caused by the withdrawal of troops to support the imperial ambitions of various usurpers and to defend the core of the empire from the creeping entropy that was tearing it apart its fabric along the Rhine. Monks are rarely cheerful in my experience. There is also an oft-quoted line attributed to the contemporary Emperor Honorius that Britain should look to its own defence, e.g. Good luck with those Saxons, lads. Let me know how you get on. It's from this text that we derive the traditional date of 410 to 11 for the end of Roman Britain. Hold your horses, though. The veracity of this source must be heavily caveated. Not only is it actually from a 6th century report into Honorius's reign, but it may actually be the result of sloppy penmanship and refer to a similarly named tribe in Italy rather than the Britons. This seems even more likely when you consider the context of the quote as well, which is amid a list of references to events in Italy. Nonetheless, it's a beguiling line of possible imperial realpolitik. This same source, if believable, would also give insight into the death throes of Roman Britain, describing what is, in effect, a management buyout, with the remaining Roman officials being expelled in 410. So why was Rome willing to surrender the four provinces of Britannia, first trod by Julius Caesar and conquered by Claudius centuries earlier? Roman Britain was not a democracy, and there would have been no popular mandate gained for change. However, effectively the same process would have taken place. Those holding political sway and local influence were tired of external meddling. The rebellious, heavily garrisoned and far-flung island had never been a cash cow for the empire, and maintaining it would have been an exercise in conspicuous munificence by the 4th century. Indeed, hundreds of years earlier, Nero had considered abandoning the province entirely. It's possible that Rome, hard-pressed on other fronts, and unwilling to expend the capital required to keep Britain in its orbit, simply shrugged and said, Good luck, then. There is a final textual reference which David would never forgive me for not talking about, because it's in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The entry for 409 or 10 says, Here the Goths destroyed the stronghold of Rome, and afterwards the Romans never ruled in Britain. Nine years later, in 418, the Chronicle records... Here the Romans assembled all the gold hordes which were in Britain, and hid some in the earth, so that no one afterward could find them, and took some with them into Gaul. So, so much for what got written down. Can we learn much more from the physical remains that Roman culture left in the century before this ancient precursor to Brexit? The so-called forts of the Saxon shore, and town walls which archaeology has uncovered, start to appear in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and would seem to indicate a growing sense of threat, which is discordant with the traditional Pax Romana narrative. When things are peaceful and prosperous, societies build palaces and swimming pools, not castles and walls. 
In fact, the island experienced several documented military incursions in the 4th century, most famously the barbarian conspiracy and endemic Pictish raiding throughout the 390s. It was a violent place. The archaeology of Roman Britain towns of this period speaks of terminal decline as well. The building and maintenance of public institutions, such as a town's basilica, was a point of historic pride among local aristocrats throughout the empire. But this comes to an end in Britain in the 4th century. Counterintuitively, some of the most indulgent and sprawling private villas discovered date from this time. It's possible that this represents a societal shift, with wealth increasingly focused in the hands of a tiny metropolitan elite controlling the remaining resources. Gosh, that's hard to imagine too, isn't it? History truly is another country. There's a lovely piece of evidence to be seen in one of my favourite examples of historic sleuthing, and it's in the analysis of coins found from the early 5th century. This sleuthing reveals a bit of the lived reality of the slide into destitution embodied in the crumbling towns at the time. Most of the coins we have are to a lesser but usually greater extent clipped, that is, having had their edges shaved or more brazenly cut off, preserving what the clipper would doubtless have asserted was still legal tender, whilst also furnishing a meagre harvest of precious metal with which to buy one's tea. People would have been pushed into this sharp practice because they had less money, but also because there was less money in real terms too. Analysis shows that the flow of coinage from the imperial mints on the mainland starts to decline in the 370s until it dries up completely, with the last coin reaching the island in 402. So cash was scarce, physically and in terms of liquidity. Who knows what impact this would have had on the remaining unpaid troops? Well, what normally happens when men brought up in a culture of violence and authority are deprived of their income? Millet wouldn't have agreed, but I'm willing to bet there was a pretty rapid descent into local brigandage and protection rackets, and not so many chaste clinches with local maidens on beaches. From the physical evidence, then, a picture emerges of a society moving inexorably closer to the edge, with yesterday's long-assumed certainties dropping away due to threats of an economic, military and migrant nature. If you were a citizen of late Roman Britain, I think you'd have felt a bit jumpy, and with good reason. Is that it, then? Is that all we can tell about the experience of the end of empire in Britain? Well, not quite. There is one final insight given to us of the psychology of the time. Well, the psychology of the super-rich at any rate. And it's an insight given by the astonishing quality and quantity of buried hoards discovered in recent decades across the east of England. People were hiding enormous wealth, consigning it to an uncertain fate underground. And by the fact that it remained unretrieved for modern detectorists to discover, we know that no one connected with its burial was able to come back for it. An echo of this kind of thinking can be seen in Samuel Pepys' diary, from a thousand years later. Faced with the sudden panic of the Great Fire of London, he records how he moved his portable wealth, stealthily, to a safe house away from the danger, but buried his heavier treasures in his back garden. A man after my own heart, these amounted to eight wheels of expensively imported Parmesan cheese. His Romano-British forebears didn't just hide the fromage. They buried everything they had, in multiple instances. They must have run out of all other options. It is from these hordes, then, that we can infer with some confidence the violence, fear, chaos and disintegration of ordered society which other evidence only hints at. The Mildenhall treasure, found during World War II in Suffolk and now in the British Museum, is remarkable for the sheer grandeur of its enormous silver-serving dish, exquisitely decorated with scenes of gods and maynards. It must have belonged to people with deep and historic ties to a mythology that stretched all the way back to classical Greece, and it would have been one of the most valuable objects on the whole island and they buried it, in a field and in a panic. Now, having listened to many, many hours of the history of England, 
I believe that David's public will be expecting at least one wild tangent per episode, so here goes mine. There is a conspiracy theory about the Mildenhall treasure. It's fastened on to the circumstances of its discovery, in wartime, adjacent to an airfield, and the astonishing artistry of the dish, and it holds that it was liberated from somewhere else, by enterprising airmen, and was never dug up at all. Google it to make up your own mind. Anyway, back to what, for the sake of argument, I'll call the main narrative. The great dish of Mildenhall was possibly an heirloom, and its pagan iconography is counterpointed by the hoard of silver dug up some miles northwest in Water Newton, just outside Peterborough. This is a hoard of silver jugs, bowls and plaques inscribed with the Kai and the Roe, the symbols of the new religious orthodoxy of the empire. It's curious to think of these two religious extremes existing alongside each other, but perhaps this is a classic case of over-interpretation of the evidence. Whichever set of opposed beliefs the original owners subscribed to, they seem to have shared the same set of fears. For me, though, the hoard burial which reveals most about the final rattling breath of Roman Britain is that discovered in Hoxton, Suffolk, in 1992, by a metal detectorist looking for his friend's lost hammer. Don't worry, he found the hammer too. The Hoxton hoard is the largest collection of Roman gold and silver yet found in England, and is remarkable because, compared with the artistry of Mildenhall or the piety of Walter Newton, it's made up of dozens of everyday objects, the very stuff of life. There were bowls and jug handles, pepper pots and brushes, and lots and lots of spoons, inscribed with the names of what were, presumably, their owners. Okay, they're made of solid silver, so perhaps not the everyday that you and I are used to, but you still get the impression that this is a hastily assembled collection of every portable piece of wealth in someone's house. The objects were wrapped in cloth and straw, stacked inside a medium-sized wooden chest with a delicate lock. There were thousands of gold solidi coins, silver silicae, estimated to represent around three years' pay for a governor of a Roman province. A tidy sum. More perplexing is the inclusion of comparatively worthless copper coins, the type of which small transactions for food or shelter would be made. And the notable empty settings in some of the pieces which would originally have held gemstones. You can form your own theories about these two facets of the hoard as well as I. For me... This set of precious objects feels like the personal effects of a family, forced into extreme measures by the exigencies of the times. Someone stared into this glittering chest 1600 years ago, closed the lid and hid it in a shallow hole in what was shortly to become East Anglia. They must have hoped they'd be able to dig it up again, and they must have feared what others were prepared to do to get their hands on it. From this, I think it's reasonable to conclude that Brexit version 1 was a nasty, brutish and relatively drawn-out affair which no one particularly enjoyed. So, cheery stuff. I'm sure the modern Brexit will be much more the Millet version, tearful maidens on coastlines, and much less the wandering bands of murderous, unpaid soldiers type of thing, don't worry. History very rarely repeats itself, as I think the phrase goes. Anyway, that's probably enough now from me, as it's getting dark outside my shed and uh, there's a hole in the garden I need to dig for something. If you're the type of person who enjoys historical novels, you may be interested to know that I've written one based on the circumstances of the burial of the Hoxton Hoard. It's called The Silver Empress, after one of the items in the hoard, and you can get it from Amazon or via my website, edmcwatt.com. It only remains for me to thank David again for the chance to contribute this episode, to say hello to Jason Isaacs, obviously, and to wish you all a great week. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 